when one is serious about reading the Bible, one of the common struggles in reading it and understanding it centers around the issue of miracles. Um, the church, widely concerned, uh, has a lot to say about the differing uh, understandings and opinions about miracles in present day. There are some who would say that uh, miracles are, were part of the, uh, you know, the church age in the first century, and they, they don't pertain to today. That's some who would say that. There are others who would suggest that miracles are part of the full expression of God and are every part should be a part of our world today. And there's smart people, learned people on both sides of that equation. There are some who would say, you know, in my experience, I've prayed and prayed and prayed and God's done nothing. And so I don't believe that miracles are for today. There are others who would say, you know, I prayed for a miracle and God did it. Uh, and so, yeah, I believe completely they're, 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 they're part of our, uh, God's expression in the world today. I mean, there are people on both sides of that equation. And, and when you read the Bible, you have to deal with what do you understand about miracles? Was God in, in, in the Bible, was God just showing off? You know, when he would do miraculous stuff, when Jesus would do miracles, was he just showing off? Is it, was he just simply being nice to some people and not nice to others? Is, is that why, why Jesus did some miraculous stuff in some people's lives? And others, you know, I mean, there are plenty of blind people around. He only healed a couple of them. So was he just being nice to some and not nice to others? Or, or was there something deeper going on? What do you do with miracles? How did Jesus choose which miracles he would do? How did he choose who would who would get them and, and who he would heal and who he would respond to and those he didn't? Is there a deeper purpose behind the miracles that were chosen to do and, and those to whom he chose to do them? See, there's no simple way to understand God's hand and how God's hand moves. We would love it to be simple because then we could figure him out. But he's a little bigger than us. And so we just have to submit oftentimes to his way of doing things and his choices. But by the first century, Judaism had developed a major list of major things that the Messiah could be expected to do. The Messiah, the chosen one that, 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 that all of Judaism was waiting for God to reveal to the world, this chosen one, by the first century they had developed a major list of things that that Messiah could be expected to do. Proves that he was the Messiah. So when he showed up, he would be able to do these certain things and everybody would go, oh, well, I guess he's, I guess this is it. So one of those proofs that the Messiah would be expected to do was raise the dead. So Jesus in John 11 raises Lazarus from the dead. Proving should be that he has the power over death and was the Messiah. Another one of the proofs that, that they suggested that the Messiah would be able to do was healing a deaf, dumb, and blind, demon-possessed person. And so in Matthew 12, verses 32 and 33, the Bible says, as they were going along their way, Jesus and his disciples, a demon-possessed man who was mute, means he couldn't speak, was brought to Jesus. 
And when the demon, verse 33 says of, 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 of Matthew 12, when the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the Bible says the crowds at that marveled, saying nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Now understand the sequence. There was a mute man who couldn't speak, and when the, he was demon-possessed. When the demon was cast out, he spoke. And everybody was in awe because they said nothing like that's ever happened before in Israel. Why? Because the understanding of that day is that in order for a demon to be cast out of a person, that person had to speak that name of that demon. Like that, the, 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 if, if, if someone's going to cast a demon out of someone, they had to call that demon out by name. That's why Jesus, when he was walking among the graves, the man that was possessed by a legion, they said, what is your name? And the demon said, we are legion, for we are many, naming its name so that then the demon could be cast, the demons could be cast out. So this was a mute man who had no ability to be able to speak the name of the demon so Jesus could cast him out. But Jesus cast the demon out anyway. And then after the demon cast out, then the mute man spoke. So a couple things are going on. One, nothing like that had ever happened before. Wait, wait, wait. Demons have been cast out of people before, but never a mute man. So Jesus, in that one act, was proving that he had authority over everything in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That he was, he was the master even over demons. Because nothing ever like that had happened before in a mute man having a demon cast out of him. Do you understand? you understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense? I just want to check and make sure. The other thing that Jesus was doing was checking off these things that people had listed who the Messiah should be, casting a demon out of a mute man. He was saying, look, you're looking for someone. I am him. I'm checking off all the boxes that you thought I should be able to check off. So, raising a dead person, casting a demon out of a mute person. Do you know what another one of the big lists of the Messiah that should be able to, of what a Messiah should be able to do? You know what it was? No, let me tell you. Healing a leper. Leprosy was considered an incurable disease. And so the Messiah, they said, should have the power and authority to be able to heal a leper. And so in Luke 17, we see the account of not just one leper getting healed, but 10 lepers getting healed. And that's why Luke 17 is so important. So these miracles that we see in Scripture aren't just God showing off, and they're not just God's being nice to some and not nice to Ultimately, the purpose behind these miracles is to reveal of Jesus, is to reveal, I am the Messiah. All these miracles I'm doing are proofs that you want to look for in the Messiah. I'm doing them all. I'm here. Jesus, as the Messiah, the understanding of that is that that is God has come into our reality. Jesus, being God, has showed up. And over and over and over, he gives people proof after proof after proof that he is God. Miracle after miracle after miracle. Now, here's why this is important. Because what is Christmas? Don't just say December 25th. What is Christmas? The birth of Christ, right? It's the birth of Christ. It's the birth of the Messiah. Him coming into earth through the Virgin Mary 
where God took on human form and said, I'm here. Everything about Christmas was a miracle. And every miracle is meant to reveal God to the world. Jesus, one of his names we were told in scripture at the announcement of his birth is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in essence, Christmas, though we celebrate it on December 25th, because it's the advent of God in the world, in Jesus, Christmas literally is 365. Because Jesus being God with us, always with us, Christmas is always here. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like every miracle in, in, in the Bible, it, it was given to us to prove that God is God and Jesus is a Messiah. Jesus' name, he's known as God with us, Emmanuel. Christmas is the advent of God coming to earth. Jesus said, I will always be with you. I'll never leave you. Never relationship with me. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. So in essence, those of us with a relationship with Jesus should be experiencing Christmas, the miraculous, 365. Do you understand? Now, God would say, look, you all celebrate me one day a year, December 25th. I get that, and that's fantastic. But honestly, Christmas should be 365. Now, here's the thing about that. God would also tell us that when I show up, when I start doing stuff, y'all need to say thank you. That's what Jesus would say. That's what God would say. And this is why Luke 17 is so important. It's a miracle that proves Jesus is the Messiah. That continues to remind us that he's with us doing things in our midst. And that we owe him thanks. If you have a Bible or on your little smartphone, go to Luke 17. Jesus wants to remind us, Christmas is not canceled. I'm right here. I'm still doing stuff. And because I'm right here, because your Christmas is never canceled, because I'm always with you, and because I'm always doing stuff, you need start giving me thanks. Luke 17. Let me read it to you. Now, on his way, Jesus and his disciples, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. I'll talk about that in just a minute. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, master, have pity on us. When Jesus saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he, came, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, weren't, all, weren't, weren't there ten of all y'all? I know there was more than one. I'm thinking there were ten. He says, where's the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? I mean, just. Jesus was so microaggressive. 
He called a guy a foreigner. <laughs> I mean, when you think about the way Jesus talked to people and the stuff he did, like, we would, we would term him like, a, well, he's so microaggressive. I just, it just makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> Doesn't he know who I think I am? You know, like if he showed up and did everything he did these days and said what he said, they'd probably crucify him. <laughs> and so then the foreigner said to him, no, Jesus said to the foreigner, rather, rise and go, your faith has made you well. So how many lepers, not leopards, how many lepers were there? Ten. Ten. One of them was a what? Samaritan. We can infer that the other, ten, uh, the other nine were what? Jews. Okay? So Jesus walk along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Samaritans live in, in Samaria. And then Jews live in Galilee. He's walking along that border. Ten of them come. One of them's a Samaritan, a foreigner. We can infer the other nine are Jews. Samaritans and Jews. I'm going to give you a little history lesson here. Now, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. They hated each other. And that hatred extends all the way back to somewhere uh, in the 6th or 5th century BC. So this hatred has been brewing for five, 600 years between the Samaritans and the Jews. And the, the root of hostility goes all the way back to the third king of Israel. The first king was King Saul. The second king was King David. The third king was King Solomon. After King Solomon died, the nation of Israel was separated, divided in half. There were 10 of the 12 tribes up north and two of the 12 tribes down south. And the 10 tribes up north bordered on foreign land. Part of the foreigner land that it bordered upon was Assyria. And way back in the Old Testament, 500 years before this ever happened, Assyria came down into the northern part of Israel where the 10 northern tribes were in 722 BC and conquered the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And what they did is the, the Assyrians took a bunch of the Hebrews back to Assyria and left a bunch of Assyrians in their place to intermarry with the Hebrews or the Jews. So these Assyrians come down, take over the land, and leave a bunch of people there to intermarry. Those people, as a result of the intermarriage between Assyrians and Hebrews, are the Samaritans. And so the Jews called them half-breeds because they weren't fully Jew. They were the byproduct, the product, the children of the Marriage between Assyrians and Hebrews. And so they hated them. The Jews hated them because they weren't fully Jew. You understand what I'm saying? And so the Samaritans, and this is why in, in, in the Bible, when Jesus talked to this one woman at a well, she was a Samaritan woman. And that's why she was so flabbergasted. She's like, you Jews don't talk to us. One, I'm a woman, and a rabbi didn't talk to a woman, but two, I'm a Samaritan woman. Like, I'm so far down on the totem pole, like, you should never engage me in a conversation. That's why it was so scandalous. These Samaritans didn't worship God in Jerusalem where the temple was. They worshiped God at a place called Mount Gerizim. So they didn't worship right. They had a bad, you know, lineage. They were just dogs. And they were always vying for power, and they are always fighting with each other, with the Jews. There was just bad blood between them all. And out of this group of 10, nine of them are what? Jews. Jews. One of them's what? What are they doing together? 
They, they're not supposed to. What are they doing together? Here, here's what I know. See if this isn't true. Shared pain has a way of making friends out of enemies. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like shared pain has a way of making friends out of enemies. There are so many people who... You know one of the reasons why there's so much racial discord in America? Okay, I'll tell you why. Because there is, there's some painful history that some of us have never experienced. And because I don't share your pain, you're different. Do you understand? And the moment I can enter into a pain, that person who was different becomes just like me and I become just like them. Shared pain has a way of making friends out of enemies. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's amazing how a married couple will relate to someone who's gone through divorce differently than a divorced person going relating with someone who's gone through divorce because they understand. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. See, here's, there are some people in the huddle of your life those 8 to 15 people that are closest to you, there are some people in the huddle of your life that are in your life because they've been through the same pain you've been through. You have a commonality of a shared experience. And here, here's the important thing for you to know. If you have a relationship with Jesus, they're going to want to know what has been the change in your life. They're going to come to you and say, look, we've been through the same thing, but who you are is not who you used to be. What's the difference? Do you understand? And they need to hear from you. The difference is this man named Jesus. This Samaritan was not someone who was supposed to be favored by God. He was not someone who was supposed to have God's mercy. That was supposed to go to the Jews, not the Samaritans. And so this morning, I don't want to talk to any of you good religious Hebrew people. This morning, I want to talk to you Samaritans. I want to talk to those of us in the room who know that because of my background, because of my life, because of what I've done, I don't deserve God to do anything for me. See, there were nine who believed that we're part of the in group. We deserve some from God. But there was one who knew that who he was was not at all who he should be. And he, he deserved nothing of God's mercy and nothing of God's grace. That's why he was so overwhelmed when he got it. You understand? And so I want to talk to the Samaritans in a room. Those of you who know. That if God does something on your behalf, it ain't because you brought nothing to the table. Because you deserve nothing. Right? Okay. 
it seems like I'm either not making sense or I'm stepping on someone's toes. And so if I'm not making sense, you let me know and I'll clarify. I'm stepping on your toes. Just hold on. We good? Okay. Now watch what happens. As he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Fast forward a couple verses. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Now, here's the important part. Jesus heals all ten, whether they deserved it or not. Only one came back to say thank you. I want you to notice here, and I underlined it for you. All ten lifted their voices saying, hey, help us out. All ten. The, when the Bible says lifted their voices, all that means is they just asked. They weren't hollering, they weren't making a ruckus, they just asked. But one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, came back and praised God in a loud voice. That is a Greek word that means mega. It means they all asked for God to do something. But one of them shouted when something was done. Now here's what I need you to understand. The intensity of my thanksgiving ought to surpass my prayers. There are so many people that pray with great fervency over and over and over and over and over for God to do something. And it seems as though when God, out of his mercy and his grace, because you don't deserve him to do nothing, chooses to do something anyway, we rarely ever return to say thanks. And when we do say thanks, it's pretty dang quiet and it's pretty dang private because we prayed in privacy, we give thanks in privacy, and that's not the way the Bible says to do it. Whatever fervency with which you have prayed, your thanksgiving ought to resound louder. All of us know what it is to ask. Few of us know what it is to shout, thank you. You understand? See, if I can ask God to do it, I better return and give thanks that he's done it. And that return to give him thanks that he's done it better be in a loud voice. Though my prayer might be in private, my thanksgiving ought to be in public. And my prayer ought to always give rise to my praise. Do you understand? Here's the okay, so I'm really struggling right now because I don't feel as though any of all y'all are tracking with me. Like this ought to make. I, I feel like a lot of us has prayed for a lot of things a long time. Let, let, me, how, let, me, let me share with you how to know if, if, if we have an ungrateful heart. If I pray every day, all day, all moment after moment after moment, time after time, day after day, week after week, year month after month, year after year, for God to do something, and he finally does it, my praise ought to be day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, in thanksgiving for what he's already done. When my prayer surpasses my praise, I've got an ungrateful heart. Do you understand? I'm going to take another side note again. You know what is so frustrating as a parent? I'm going to tell you what's so frustrating. If you're a parent, you'll, you'll agree with me on this. If your kid steps out of line, daddy can correct that, right? Daddy can step in. You get stupid, you get snotty, you think you're, oh, I can take care of that. I know how to handle you, right? My daddy always told me, hey, I met through Vietnam. 
you sleep with one eye open. You know, so I knew daddy could take care of business. But let me tell you something daddy can't fix. It's an ungrateful heart of an entitled child. What do you do with that? You understand what I'm saying? How do you think God feels? Like when we ask over and over and over, he finally does something, we're like, yeah, yeah, thanks, appreciate it. Have you ever, have you ever wondered what God's will is? No, no. Like two of you have ever wondered? Y'all, y'all need to start thinking about Jesus a little bit more. If you've never wondered about what God's will is, you just going through life blindly, nobody cares. Like, I'm going to ask you again. Have any of you ever wondered about what God's will is for your life? Yes. Okay. That's better. Let me tell you. I'm going to tell you what God's will is. If you've ever thought, if I only knew what I'm going through is God's will, I could accept it easier. That, that's what we think. Like, if I just know what I'm going through, if I know what I'm going through is God's will for me, I can accept that. Well, how do you know God's will? I'm going to tell you. First Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is what? God's will is less an event and more of a heart. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will. Quit asking, is this event part of God's will? Because God's already said, regardless of the event, if you're in it, I want you to give thanks. That's God's will. It's giving thanks before, God's ever, before God ever does an activity. Now I want you to notice, the Bible says it doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. That would be ridiculous. That's like saying, you know, your, your puppy gets hit by a car and dies. Thank you, God, that my puppy got hit by a car and died. That's ridiculous. Who would thank God for that? Right? I've heard people who lost their jobs. I just thank God I lost my job. I would never, I like, that doesn't make sense to me. But, but that's how people have misunderstood what the Bible says. It doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. There are some circumstances that, how do I give thanks for that? It does say give thanks in all circumstances. Because whatever circumstances you are in, God is in it also. And you can always give thanks for the quality and the character of God's heart in the middle of a circumstance. Not necessarily for it, you understand? So whatever circumstance you're in, there's something of God that you can give thanks while in the midst of it. That's God's will. So, in essence, what we're told to do is to thank God on credit and giving him credit and thanks in advance of the activity that he's going to perform. See, the only thing that you owe God, that you're able to pay God, is thanksgiving to God. There's nothing else you could repay God for. The only thing that you can repay God for that you're able to is thanksgiving to him. See, the problem is that wherever there's a spirit of entitlement, there's a diminished gratitude. These nine of the ten didn't come back and give thanks. Why? Why? They figure they owe it. Like we're part of your people. We're not like that guy. I mean, if you're going to hear anybody, you're going to heal us. So not him. I mean, have you seen him? Like, God, if you're going to do anything for anything, you're going to do it for us because we're, we're your people. Like, we're your special ones, right? 
And so they had this attitude of entitlement and incredibly diminished gratitude. See, that one Samaritan knew he wasn't deserving of God's mercy nor grace. He knew he added nothing to the equation. He just relied on God's mercy and grace. So when he received it, he was overly grateful. See, here's, here's why this is so important. We got to get this. Because if you give me what I think I deserve, am I going to give you much thanks for it? No, because I earned it. I mean, when's the last time you who have a job, you walked into your boss's office after he, he paid you what you earned and thanked him for what he just paid you? Any of you? Phil, you own a company, right? How many employees do you have? 200, 200 employees. And most of them probably work pretty hard, right? Because yes. they're afraid of you. <laughs> so they work hard. You give them a pay, 200 of them. How long have you owned that business? 30 years. 30 Two times a month they get paid? Every week. I don't know how many paychecks that is. That's a lot. I was going to try to do the math, but it's too many. It's a lot of paychecks. 200 people every week for 30 years get a paycheck from you. How many of them have walked into your office and said, you know what, Phil, I just want to say thank you for your graciousness to me because after I busted my butt, you've been so gracious to pay me what I earned. I've been very blessed. It's happened a couple times. Phil, you're ruining my message. <laughs> Look, you need to read the room. Let me rephrase it. How many of them, how many of them who weren't former convicts have done that? I'm telling you, see, I know. It's not often that one works for their paycheck, their boss pays them, they walk in and say, hey, thanks. Right? Now, as a boss, when you're extra generous and give them what they haven't earned, then the thanks comes. Maybe we've neglected giving thanks because you've not understood grace. Maybe after God has done something on our behalf, we have not returned like the leper who was healed, shouting thanks because there's something in us that really thinks that perhaps we have been good enough and gone to church enough and given enough and been obedient enough that God should have answered our prayers. See, the warning sign that you are not understanding grace, the warning sign that you've nullified God's mercy and grace is that you haven't properly given thanks. Be careful. It means cancels it. The warning sign that you've canceled out grace is that you haven't properly given thanks. I, I, I want to suggest this. That perhaps the shout of your thanksgiving ought to be greater than the passion of your prayer. And maybe, just maybe, God doesn't answer our prayers the first time we pray it. Because he wants greater thanksgiving on the back end of it. Because he knows that if he were to respond to the first time we pray, that we would take it for granted and our thanksgiving would be so anemic it wouldn't even be worth offering. 
So maybe God withholds and withholds and withholds because he knows that if he gives it right away, we'll think that we've done something to earn it and we'll not return to him and give him thanks. And maybe, just maybe, he knows how much he's done for us day after day after day. And he knows we have plenty to already give him thanks for. And so he may just be withholding stuff so we will realize how much we have to be thankful for once he answers. Do you understand? The fact is, I don't need another reason to give God thanks. I just need a better memory. He's already done enough. He entered the village. He was met by 10 lepers, stood at a distance, lifted up their voice, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. As they went, they were cleansed. We have to understand this. When Jesus told them to go show themselves to the priest, it was for two purposes. One, so they could be let back into their community. Because they couldn't rejoin the community until the priest had, 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 had visually inspected them and saw that they were clean because of the infectiousness of this disease. He let them. They, they, see, God knows how much we need people. God knows how much we need community. God knows how we were built for relationships. And, and I understand the seriousness of this virus that's going around. And if you need to be careful, be very careful. Be very careful. Don't be stupid. But I also know that part of the destructive nature of this virus is isolation. And so that's one reason why God said, you go to yourself because you have to, you got to be back with your people. You got to be back in your huddle. But the other reason he said, you go show yourself to the priest because this is one of those signs that people need to see to prove that I am God. Don't miss me, he says. Let it be known to all the people around you that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God. When God does a, sometimes I would just maybe suggest that the reason why God does the things he does, the miraculous things in people's lives, he does it so that he can convince people who don't believe in him. He doesn't do it just to make us better. Sometimes he does just to, you know, just to make our lives better, I understand, because he's gracious, but most of the time he does it so that people who don't believe in him will believe in him. So when God moves in your life, our sole response is to shout his name. When God moves in our lives, our sole response is to tell his story in our life. When God moves in our life and does something for us on our behalf, our job is to shine the spotlight on him. See, God doesn't exist to make our lives better. Our lives exist to shine the spotlight on him. So when he moves in your life, shout his name in response. I honestly, I truly believe that some, some people have not seen God moved in their life like God desires to move because he knows that if he does, you're just going to have a shut mouth about him anyway. He's getting no glory out of your pain nor your deliverance. You understand? Now, don't miss this. As they went, they were cleansed. As they walked in obedience, they were healed. You understand what I'm saying? As they lived in obedience to God's word, they were healed. 
We ought not expect healing or blessing while we're walking in disobedience. God is not going to bless our disobedience so we can keep being disobedient. You understand? See, some people want God to act on the front end, and then they'll give him their, his, their heart on the back end. God says, you walk in obedience, give me your heart, and then you'll see my hand. Do you get this? So many people, while living in disobedience, praying for God's hand, and God says, no, 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 understand the lepers. As they walked in obedience, then they saw my hand move in their life. It's very, very important. Now, I know, I, I know I'm, I'm way past time, but I want to do one more thing, and I want to show you how to make life extraordinary. Do you mind if I do that? Do I have your permission? Can I show you how to make ordinary extraordinary? Hey, this is good. It's not real difficult. It's real simple. And, and I think my fear is that the simplicity is going to make you think it, it's not going to work. Don't let the simplicity fool you. I'm going to show you how to make what's ordinary in life extraordinary. It's real simple. Give thanks and express gratitude over the ordinary that you already have. That's it. Now, that might be a nice little, neat little sound bite, but it means nothing if I can't prove it to you in the Bible. The Bible is always the standard, so let me prove it to you in the Bible. 1 Timothy 4. Some people will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Wow! Teachings of demons. Like, like this says, be very careful. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be seed with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. This is what it's saying. There are some demonic teachings. That's what that says. That's going to try to convince people. And it uses two things here, marriage and food. In essence, there was an idea back in this day that that which was pleasurable and physical was evil and that which was spiritual and esoteric was good and so what he's saying here by when he says trying to convince you don't get married he's saying don't engage in those proper physical pleasures he says so husband and wife you get married man enjoy that stuff that's what he says and all this food that you say people say you can't eat man you can eat it and people are lying to you when they're telling you anything different that's what he's saying now watch this for everything, God, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. If what? If it's received with what? Thanksgiving. For it is made what? Holy by the word of God in prayer. So understand, here's what I'm saying. When you give thanks for the ordinary that you have, God approves of it. And he actually, through that thanksgiving of the ordinary, makes it holy. And when something is holy, consecrated to God, he blesses it. So the ordinary that you have is meant to be enjoyed. And when you enjoy it with thanksgiving, God makes that ordinary thing holy. And whatever is holy, he multiplies. So that ordinary spouse you're married to, and you think, God, why couldn't you give me an extraordinary spouse? You start saying, God, thank you for the ordinary spouse that I have. I thank you for what you've given to me, as ordinary as they are. They're certainly not special thank you for my ordinary little spouse and in that thanksgiving that ordinary you start to enjoy and god consecrates your spouse makes a holy makes them good megan you see how easy that is is it easy so you take your job ordinary job 
I mean, you're not working for Phil, so it's not blessed. <laughs> but that other ordinary job, God, thank you for the ordinary job that I have. I praise you for that. Thank you for the ordinary job. I have. And in that thanksgiving comes this enjoyment for what you're giving thanks for that makes it actually holy. And whatever is holy, even your job, God multiplies it. Do you understand? There's this guy down south. I was a pastor in down south. And, and he was raising his two boys, he and his wife and two boys in a little apartment. And, and they were the type that were just always behind the eight ball financially. They could never get ahead. They start coming to church. They give their life to Christ. They start getting stuff lined up financially. They're tied. They don't not overextend themselves. They don't live on credit cards anymore. They start getting all their paying off their debt and all this stuff. And God blessed them and let them buy a house. And so all these years, he's talking to me about the, the pains of financial debt and all this stuff and living in an apartment. Well, now he has a house. Then he started coming to my office complaining about how big his backyard was and the fence kept falling down. And they would always lament, oh, I can't believe my backyard, there's so much to take care of and my stupid fence and there's termites, so I gotta keep rebuilding my fence. I said, well, well, just slow down a minute. Well, why don't you start thanking God for your big backyard and that you have a fence that falls down because he can certainly take you back to the apartment anytime you wanna go. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then the thanksgiving of the thing comes the enjoyment of the thing that God then consecrates and makes holy. And when he consecrates and makes holy, he's going to bless. You got something ordinary in your life? Start thanking God for it. God will start consecrating it and making it holy. Caleb, Ben, Jeff, y'all need to come up here. One more. If they're not up here, I can keep preaching. That's the church rules. I don't know if you knew that. Are you running now? Ah, Lord, thank you for my ordinary worship guy. Give, and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaking together, running over, it'll be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Most people preach this and teach this as a, as a principle of finances, and it is. I'm not saying it is, absolutely. Whatever measure you use to give to God financially, he'll press it down and make room for more and give you more overflowing so you can give more. That's absolutely a financial principle. But understand this in the context of thanksgiving. Whatever thanksgiving you give to God, whatever you give thanks to God about, God will compact and squish down and make room for more blessing over that thing over which you give thanks for so that it overflows. Father, thank you for my ordinary spouse. He'll start to scrunch that down and make room for even more overflowing blessing to come from that ordinary spouse. God, thank you for my ordinary job. He starts to compact that and make even more room for overflowing blessing out of your ordinary job. God, thank you for my ordinary kid. Thank you for my ordinary paycheck. Thank you from an ordinary house and as they give you things that you start to scrunch that down to make room for even more overflowing and as I praise you and thank you for it you bless with more and consecrate it as holy and whatever you consecrate to holiness is going to be blessed do you understand how important this is I just wonder how much of the ordinary in our lives we have lamented over God, you gave me this job. Can I have something better? God, I got to drive this car. Can I have something better? God, you took me to this college. Can I have something better? God, you gave me this person. Can I have something better? And all the while, God said, would you just start thanking me for everything? You don't need me to do something else. You just need to have a better rememberer. I'm going to tell you why, if you have a relationship with Jesus, why you should be thankful. Because by God's grace, 
He's adopted you as his child and made you an heir of heaven. See, the father wasn't going to die. He didn't need an heir to pass anything on to. And the father already had a son. He didn't need another child to pass anything on to. The father chose to adopt us by faith because of his grace. He looked at me and he said, Carl, there's nothing about you that I want. You don't add anything to my life, God said. He said, but I just want you to experience my grace. And because I am a God who loves you, the unlovely, I want to share with you my power, my authority, and my inheritance. I don't know why God chose me other than his grace. And I'm certainly not going to ask him to reconsider because I don't want him to change his mind. I'm just going to tell him thank you. Do you understand? So whatever circumstances you're in right now, Start giving thanks in that circumstance. I'm not saying for, I'm saying in. Whatever ordinary you have in life right now, start thanking God for the blessing of that ordinary. And in that thanksgiving, he starts to consecrate it and make it holy. And whatever God has already done for you, start giving him thanks for the thanksgiving, you are in debt to him already. Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Christmas, for the Christ follower, is 365. And because Christmas for the Christ follower is 365, our thanksgiving ought to be 365. Do you understand? And so I'm going to invite you right now. One, to align your life with Jesus by faith. And to start walking in obedience. And then, just tell him thank you. Pray with me. I'm going to challenge you to bring your life before God in a right relationship with him. Say, Father, thank you that you love me. And I agree with you that I don't bring anything to the table. While I don't deserve mercy and grace, while I've done nothing to earn your hand. Thank you that you love me anyway. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of the sin I'm living in right now. Help me learn to walk in obedience to your word. I accept you as the leader of my life. Let that be your prayer. And now make this your second prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
thank you. I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed. But I have not given thanks, given thanks, given thanks. And so for every way that you've already moved in my life, for everything you've already done, I'm not asking you for a thing in this moment. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for my ordinary. Thank you for my ordinary. Thank you for my ordinary. Thank you for your hand. Thank you for your providence. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you are slow to anger and abounding in love. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are compassionate. Thank you for your long suffering. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you that you are the good shepherd. Thank you that you'll never leave me nor forsake me. Thank you that you'll never abandon me to the grave. Thank you that you are my shepherd. Thank you that you are my healer. Thank you that you are my provider. Thank you that you are my holiness. Thank you that you are the God that makes me right with God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everything that you've brought me through. Thank you for everything you've already done. Thank you for everything you're going to do. You live in the praises of your people and in this moment we simply praise you and thank you. You've already done enough. Bring it to our memory all that you've already done that we return as the Samaritan leper and shout with a loud voice thank you thank you thank you